Hi, welcome to Offscript. I'm Zach Lewis. And I'm Dr. Draper. Today on the show, I've got a new setup that looks weird, so I'm sorry for the camera angle. Uh, there's stories to come, but it's fine. Uh, we're also going to be taking a look at Class Action Park, the HBO Max documentary. Uh, it's focused on the uh, little, 80s, little 80s amusement park that maybe went a little too off the rails. We're also going to take a look at Netflix's David Attenborough, A Life on Our Planet, which is a really cool, um, you know, nature doc, I guess, from David Attenborough. If you're familiar with him, you already kind of know what you're getting into. And if you're not, you know, stick around for our review at the end. We're going to talk about Mad Max because there's been some news today uh, that we're going to stick in the middle of our reviews. And before we get to all that, we need to talk about the news. First things first, Andy... What do you know about this Borat sequel? <laughs> what, is, what is this about? So kind of a, a surprise sequel popped up out of nowhere. Uh, Borat, which was, uh, when did that come out? 20, Dude. Uh, early, 20, early 2010s. Yeah. Um, but which was bad. kind of a, a, not satire, but like, uh, it's like Jackass, but for <laughs> Yeah, it's kind of like a prank film, right? Hidden camera. Right prank mm-hmm. film where where Sacha Baron Cohen plays a character I mean he was a freaking worldwide phenomenon I'm sure you know yeah it was uh it was a huge deal made a lot of money it was actually really pretty hilarious um and he's come out with a surprise sequel um which was shot actually during the pandemic and actually has a lot to do with the upco- upcoming U.S. election and is going to be released right before I think the week before election day um at the end of October for whatever reasons, but we, we have a new <laughs> Borat movie kind of out of nowhere. So in, in the world of Sacha Baron Cohen, right? The guy, the guy does satire like this. This is kind of his shtick. And most recently, if you haven't kept up with him, he hadn't, he had a limited series on, I think Showtime called who is America, where he basically played a bunch of characters similar to Borat or Bruno or Ali G um, in like an in like ten episodes where he would interview people, uh, politicians, celebrities about what's going on in the world. And he played different characters to interview different people, so it was kind of a bit of a variety show, a bit of a hidden camera prank show. That's kind of most recently what he'd been up to, and lately he's been a little bit more vocal about politics. But otherwise, in the past, I feel like he's remained relatively independent as far as you can being a comedian uh, creating satire. So this was a surprise. That not only is this happening, but they already shot it, right? They announced this after after Amazon had bought it, is when they said, hey, this thing's done. Apparently in, like, February, uh, or March, I guess, right when restrictions just started to loosen a little in California, and you could start to get out again, they immediately, like, were going out and shooting uh, raw stuff. I guess once everything shut down, he just, like, rallied the troops and said, hey, I want to make Borat too." Let's make it happen. I think they just kind of threw a script together. There's a trailer out. Uh, it looks, you know, loose at best, but that's what you're getting when you go see Borat, right? That's 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 what it says on the tin. Yeah, it looks wild, but not, you know, not as wild as you might think. I I don't know. You got to compete with the internet, and kind of a, a lot of what we've seen in this trailer, I feel like we've kind of seen some. Uh, internet or some youtube channels doing shout out to uh all, all gas no breaks yeah. of these ki- kinds of uh you know people going and interviewing you know either certain supporters of different candidates or people you know not adhering to social distancing guidelines uh, this kind of kind of shock news interviews are like we've kind of seen a lot of this already and the internet has evolved to where we kind of see this stuff every day so i'm not sure 
how he can, how much more over the top he can go. I'm curious. Are you interested in seeing this? Where did you land on the first one? Did you care at all? Or was it just like dumb memes back then that didn't matter? Cause... No, I, d- I saw it. It was definitely hilarious and, and pretty shocking Yeah, uh, back then. But it, like I said, I, I am interested to see this just because it's kind of out of nowhere. It's fresh content, and it's a character that was kind of a huge deal when it first came out. Yeah, I'm in the same boat. And it'll be on streaming. So, like, if you have Amazon Prime, which most people already do, you can watch it for free. So, it'll be easy to get to. Yeah, the cost, of, the barrier to entry is low. Uh, as far as the timing goes, right before the election, I don't think it's going to swing any voters or anything. So, I think that's kind of irrelevant. But I can appreciate that they're really trying to make something happen. Um in a timely manner, I guess. We'll see. I hope it doesn't hamstring the final product. Like, trying to be this goofy, funny thing isn't, isn't you know. I hope they give it time to breathe. Because yeah. Borat mm-hmm, took a while sure. to make the first one, I think. I don't think they just turned that around in three months. So, we'll see what happens. Or seven months. Or however long it's been. In other news, uh, Bill and Ted Face the Music, a show we watched recently. Uh, a film we watched recently, I should say, for the show. Uh, apparently, has been killing it over at MGM. They're making tons of money. They're all about it. What do you know about this? Well, they're not necessarily making tons of money, but they are making good money on PVOD, which is premium video on demand. Uh, they've made just over $30 million, uh, $32 million or so. And they're about, they haven't quite broken into the profit range, but they're close. I think they need about, uh, about $35 million and then it's going to be good. And this is, this is exciting because, or this is important because it shows that there is a model for success for monetary success through PVOD. And it's a, it's a mixture of what numbers you got to hit and how much you got to spend. Cause this wasn't a hugely expensive picture, but it wasn't on the cheap e- either. It wasn't like invisible man, which was made for $7 million. Like they still had to kind of shell out a bit of an investment. So, you know, I think it is important that PVOD, succeeds at least at some level because it'll it'll create a new window a new medium for films to be released and it'll it just gives consumers more choice shortens the you know the release window and kind of you know it's not great for theaters but what is these days yeah exactly uh i think i think it's you know what am i trying to say here i I think you're totally right as far as threading the needle goes right you want to make a movie that's not too expensive but isn't too cheap. You want to make something that feels like you're getting value. It feels like people can watch it at home and go, you know what? I got together with my friends or my family and watched this thing for $20. That was worth it. Disney tried to dance with that with Mulan when they charged $30 for it, and it didn't exactly work out for them. The numbers are still iffy. Early reports said they did great, and then it turned out later maybe they hadn't done as well. Um, so for, for this to be doing good, I think, is is good right especially for bill and ted an old reboot and i think you can pick up on some of that like nostalgia right nostalgia bait that people like you can throw out something cheap for seven eight ten million and you can turn a little profit on it that's that's not so bad yeah well and i think it's good for the the mid the small and mid budget films which a lot of times we hear are always disappearing or are are disappearing to streaming and this kind of shows that you, you there may be a space still f- for that level of, of film, you know, films that are under 50 million production budget. Yeah. And it's worth mentioning as well, um, whenever a film goes to, like, paid video on demand, um, that's not, like, the end of the life cycle for that movie. Normally, they'd print Blu-rays and they'll print DVDs. And, of course, you can go buy that stuff at Walmart in the $5 bin. But also, these films need to go to streaming services. They're not going to be on paid video on demand forever. And MGM will negotiate a set rate with a streaming service to make a little more money on top of that. So 
all in all, not such a bad deal. Like, yeah, you're not you're not turning heads. You're not making hundreds of millions of dollars. But then again, neither did Tenant, right? Like, if you're just trying mm-hmm. to get by in the age of quarantine, um, hey, POV, PVOD might be pretty sweet. Yeah, the, the other thing is that it hasn't been, I, I feel like all the PVOD that we've seen so far has all been kind of a knee-jerk reaction or just like, hey, we got to dump this. We can't release in theaters. And when we haven't really had something that's like had a, like, a full marketing budget that's like, we're going to put everything into PVOD and that's where we're going to market this thing, you know, to the best of our abilities. Like, it'll be interesting to see if someone does try to do that, that, you know, where you see a bunch of ads on social media or the internet or wherever. um, And that pushes people to the, to the high dollar rental. That'd be interesting to see if, if, uh, if that would make a difference. Yeah. And just continuing to break down like what PVOD is for people. I saw, I saw the, the term the other day in an article, just like casually perusing. And I had to stop for a second and remember, wait, what does PVOD mean? It's paid video on demand. Um, for anybody listening, it's confused. Premium um, video on demand. Oh, excuse me. Pre- well, you see, like it's confusing <laughs> branding. It's the same problem HBO Max has. Like yeah. it's, it's, it's a little weird and people aren't really familiar with it yet. On top of everything else that's going on in the world, yeah, trying to premiere this new kind of premium service through premium video on demand um, can be a little challenging for consumers. So it's not quite as easy as putting it on Netflix. It's not quite as easy as putting it on Amazon. But I think it's working. And I think word of mouth gets around, right? Especially for families, people watching stuff like Trolls World Tour. I think there's value there. I think if they keep working at it and keep just telling little stories, right? Nothing really huge. Just little things like the King of Staten Island or, or maybe Trolls World Tour. I think you can get somewhere. I mean, in Trolls World Tour was still <laughs> like a $100 million movie. It was still yeah. a very expensive movie. And I'd be interested to see if we ever get some hard numbers on that. But apparently it is working for that movie. Yeah, well, that the advantage that one had, uh, being a bit of a white horse here, uh, that had theatrical marketing. Right. Um, yeah, like the theater, na- national theater level of marketing, but paid video on demand service. That's, so. And that's what I mean. Like it, I'd like to see if something gets that level of marketing yeah. on something that's going primarily to, to PVOD and see if it really makes a big difference. Sure. New ideas, right? Ne- next thing you know, they'll be marketing stuff on Fortnite, um, <laughs> like Tenet, which worked out great. Speaking of our theatrical friends, we need to talk about what's going on at the movies. Nothing is going on in the movies, Andy. Everything is getting pushed back. Oh my the whole gosh. world is on fire. You've been doing interviews about this lately. I wanted to ask you about it, um, and we talked a little bit about it before the show. But uh, what what the hell is happening? Everything's getting pushed to 2021 again. I thought movies were opening back up. Right. Well, because of the, the disappointment, the American disappointment that uh, Tenet was financially, everything has been pushed back slowly. All the big October releases, which were Wonder Woman 1984 and Candyman, got pushed. Then the big November releases, which were... Um, Black Widow and James Bond die another day. They also got pushed, and then even some of our December are the big one. Dune pushed to next Christmas, right? Is that what it is? Or October? Yes, October. 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 A whole year, man. It was it was sixty days away. It was right here. Ah. I could taste it. All right, I yeah. could taste the Oscars, and yeah. yeah. Everything's getting pushed, including uh, Disney's Soul was going to be the only big November release, and then that got pushed to Disney Plus on Christmas Day. So which I want to talk about. That's interesting. But yeah. yeah, so we've had all these delays, which has actually also dominoed into theater closures, temporary closures. Alamo Drafthouse has closed all their, well, all their North Texas uh, locations are on uh, on ice for the moment. And the big one was Regal Cinema. 
Regal Cinemas, which is owned by Cineworld, closed all their North American uh, or all their American uh, theaters. I think some of their UK ones as well, and the, and also laid off like thousands of, of employees. So this is having a huge effect on on the theater on theaters in general. Yeah, um, this is tremendous. The uh, Batman as well. The Batman as well. Yeah, the, Robert Pattinson's The Batman's been pushed to 2022, which is. Okay, let me find the straightest line through this because I want to talk <laughs> about all of these things and I don't know the best way to do it. First off, James Bond. I guess not really a surprise, right? It's weird to look back and see they were the first one, one of the first ones that kicked way back anyway when everything started going down. And a lot of people looked at that, you know, with kind of surprise, like, oh, James Bond is getting pushed to 2020, like to, to, to November 2020. How strange. And now here we are. Now it's getting pushed even further. Um, all the way back to 2021, Dune is really a bummer. I'm very bummed about Dune. Like it, it's it's rough to know the movie you want to see is done and just sitting on somebody's computer somewhere. It's just sitting in a folder and and they have it and you can't see it, which is lame. The Batman is, I guess, not all that surprising for a couple of reasons. One, when we saw that early trailer for the Batman, they'd only shot like a third of that movie, right? Like a quarter. Yeah, they got a lot more to do. Yeah, that was that was only what they'd shot before February, before everything had shut down. So they cut a trailer like before they even had most of the film done. They didn't even have half of it done. So that was a little weird to get people excited. And then also there was some news about Rob Pattinson getting coronavirus and then that shut things down. So I guess that's not too big of a surprise. What is a surprise to me is to see studios move things like Dune and kind of like Warner Brothers owns Dune, right? And Warner Brothers moves Dune. And at least for a minute, and maybe I've got the story wrong now, Wonder Woman was still sitting on Christmas Day. Yes. That's moved now, right? No, I think it's still. still, Is it uh, really? Oh, my God. It hasn't been moved moved. yet. Right. That's weird, right? Because Warner Brothers is moving its own property around but keeping this other one still there and that's strange i never really understand the marketing behind that also disney's soul uh moving to disney plus is a big shift especially because they're not charging the mulan premium that'll be on christmas day if you have disney plus you can just watch it which is like i don't don't, it could the complete opposite of their marketing before they were charging more than premium video on demand services at 30 dollars instead of 20 dollars. now they're charging nothing Right, they, right. They wow. realized that yeah. that, that was kind of kind of backfired. It they didn't really make a lot of money from that. It gave it gave them an, a lot of bad press. It was confused. Yeah. It was confusing. And at this point, like they they basically <clears throat> need to take on the Netflix strategy, which is just you gotta you gotta pump co- uh, content. You gotta create content for your subscribers, and that's what they're doing by pulling it from the th- theater and adding it for for, for free essentially. Um. If you're a subscriber, uh, you know, they're creating content for, for you to see that's original. And I mean, that's going to be that's probably going to be a really great movie. The other thing is that there is there will be, you know, a, a reward for the th- like the film that can come out the earliest, which is but also at at a time when people are feel safe to go back to the theater is going to be huge. Like if, you know, if Wonder Woman sticks to the, the Christmas thing and things are more under control pandemic wise and people feel comfortable going, then it's going to be huge. It's going to be a massive hit because there's going to be literally nothing else to cease. Now that might get pushed, but whatever the kind of the first big movie is, once people feel safe, is going to rake it in, I think. Right. And that's, that's what studios were trying to do with tenant. They were trying to say, Hey, theaters want to open. People want to get out. Let's do it. 
And for those of us in the movie world, it kind of seemed like maybe it would work. But since then, not only has the numbers not turned around, um, I've heard from a lot of people who I thought were prime audience members for Tenet who, like, hadn't even seen a trailer. They had no idea this movie was coming out. Like, they had no clue. Completely, completely unplugged from any kind of, like, theatrical venue in that way, which was, you know, um, a bummer, I guess. Yeah, I, I've heard that that too. That a lot of people didn't like they didn't know anything about this movie. They didn't realize it was going to be a big deal, or if they, they didn't realize that it there was anything big about it. They hadn't heard about it. They didn't know it was a Chris Nolan movie. Uh, a lot of people don't remember his other filmography as well as as we do. Um, you know, they hadn't heard any buzz, and that part of that has just been because theaters have been closed. So I, I do want to move along because I know we spend a lot of time talking about film delays. Uh, I feel like every every three or four episodes we end up with a big story like this with a bunch of different movies getting moved around. But just to, just to kind of look at the, the immediate runway, right? Um, theaters are starting to close again, and it appears the next big blockbuster film that will be available if it doesn't get moved by a studio that has already not only acknowledged the move, but has moved its schedule around otherwise, is Wonder Woman 1984 on Christmas, right? That That's right. like, that's the big, that that is the film that will be out next that you will hear about. Otherwise, it is a whole lot of indie movies and small budget stuff that is just scraping the bottom of yeah, whatever's left. Yeah, getting, just getting dumped. Man. Get, there, there, is, there is a little bit of a uh, silver lining. Um, there's a bunch more delays that we haven't talked about that, you know, are kind of domino effect. A lot of Marvel stuff has been kicked, you know, kind of pushed down. Yeah. Uh, a lot of other things. But some things have actually been moved up. And right. One of, and, and one of those is... The fourth Matrix film has been moved from spring 22 to Christmas 21. Which is so interesting. <laughs> like, I, don't, I don't know how in the middle of everything that's going on in the theatrical release calendar between all of these studios and distributors, they're trying to figure out what they're going to do. That I don't know uh, who who is it Lana Wachowski that's making it. It's not even both siblings. It's just her. Oh. She's she's planting her flag in the sand and saying, "By God, I'm, the Matrix is going right here now. This is where we're we're going forward into the calendar," um, which is nuts to me. And I don't know why they would want to do that. But uh, outside of Wonder Woman, we we have to, we have Soul to look forward to on Disney Plus. We have uh, Mila Jovovich's Monster Hunter adaptation. The video game Monster Hunter, that's supposed to come out December 30th from Sony, which you know will be killer. Shazam was supposed to be in Shazam 2 is supposed to be in 2021. That's now in 2022. Uh the the Minecraft movie, you know, that they've been working <laughs> on for a decade. Uh that is now off the calendar from 2022 to unannounced. They have no set date for that now, not mm-hmm. even a loose year. Uh the domino effect is nuts. It is crazy to me to think we will not have any big movies in theaters until Christmas Day. 2020 oh my god maybe maybe <laughs> maybe maybe yeah we, we, we know we know at around. least soul will come out on disney plus because yes. streaming is only safe way but this is i think this is why it's important for that this premium video on demand get developed in the right way because we could be finally looking at some great films some great like small mid-budget films i know there was a, a movie called the green knight that we were really looking forward to a24 deb patel's in it it was gonna be right great. saint maude a, a lot a lot of these like a24 styles like mid-sized movies that i would definitely pay to see if we could figure out the pvod distribution yeah now i'm in the same boat i i I would really really like this to work uh it doesn't so i don't know it is what it is i guess keep it here on off script for more movie news 
In the meantime, speaking of movie news, uh, before we get to our reviews, we need to we need to, to have a little bit of a little bit of a heart to heart here uh, on on the podcast. Andy, there's there's nothing good to review <laughs> for a movie podcast. It's been a struggle. <laughs> Hubby, took, yeah, Hubie, we, yeah. Hubie, Halloween, whatever that Adam Sandler trash yes. movie was, was the, the kind of the big release, and I just couldn't bring myself to do it. We took last week off because there wasn't really anything coming out, and we were like, ah, it'll be fine. It still took us probably over half of the next week just to find something to watch because there's like nothing good. And people said, well, watch, watch like a horror movie. Right. And I think we should in the next few weeks. So we should yeah. sneak in some, some classic Halloween horror. That's fine. I'm down for that. But like, just for this week, just to try to find something new, like even stuff coming to streaming services, isn't that good. So this week <laughs> we're pleased to announce we have two documentaries, which I don't think we've ever done two documentaries. I don't think so. On off script. We're, we're at episode 119, and here we are. So I'm excited to get into them, though, um, for, for those who may have seen what we're doing on this show and thought, oh, God, I don't want to watch them talk about two documentaries. It's probably because you don't like documentaries a whole lot. Documentaries are good, man. Documentaries are really good. Like, I, I, it's, it's good stuff. If you watch reality TV, you watch documentaries all the time. They're fake, but, you know. So documentaries in a way. So I'm excited to talk about what we're doing. I'm excited to talk about these movies. I'm excited to keep seeing films. I just, just a heads up to the fans. We're going to be digging deep here. All right, but we're going to do it. We're going to dominate. It's going to be great. With that being said, we should jump into our first review of the episode. I've agreed to take the summary. And like I said at the top, I'm working on a new machine. So excuse me if it's a little clumsy, but we're just going to jump right into it. The movie is HBO Max's Action Park. Sorry, HBO Max's Class Action Park. There's nothing in the world like Action Park. Baby, let me take you. So, Class Action Park is the, is the story of Action Park, which is an amusement park out in New Jersey in the 80s that was run by a man named Gene Mulvihill. If you've never heard of Action Park, boy oh boy, are you in for a treat. I'd actually heard of it before. Uh, I got a little bit of background with amusement park uh, uh, history. and, and I, <laughs> He's I, a carny. <laughs> I, yeah, I'd heard of this before, so this was an interesting doc to watch. Gene Mulvihill was a... New York uh, stock investing kind of guy who owns some businesses and ultimately ended up with a couple of ski resorts out in New Jersey that sat empty during the summer months when there was no snow. So to fill out the time, he decided to build an amusement park. But rather than consult engineers or work with anybody who had amusement park experience, he just got together with his buddies, hired some welders, Googled some drawings on cocktail napkins, and paid them to, like, flat rate to go out and make some water slides. It was horribly unsafe incredibly dangerous and they invited people to come out to, to to come to action park for years and they were open and functioning and working as an amusement park kids came to this thing people have stories of going to action park and not only was there tons of fun to be had by all of these rides that were not that were completely unregulated and had no safety features in a park that was run by teenagers who were underpaid and overworked uh people got hurt People got hurt a lot at Action Park. And, and unfortunately, it got to a point where people like genuinely started to die on some of these rides, which is where this doc takes a turn. But I'm so excited to talk about what's happening in here. Uh, it's an HBO Max documentary. It's got a funny level of production that I'm excited to get into. Uh, Andy, had you heard of before? Well, really, the most important question. What did you think of Class Action Park? 
I, I really enjoyed this documentary. It uh, it's really shocking, and but at the same time, anytime I see a, a documentary about anything that happened in the eighties, doesn't matter the topic, it's always incredibly wild because like because it was the eighties and it was just things were unregulated in general. I guess uh, yeah, like any I mean, pick any topic, go to the eighties, and you're you're gonna be like, wow, I can't believe that that was allowed i can't believe that was legal um and th- and this follows that we get these incredible um rides these attractions that are so incredibly dangerous and you know it's just this rich guy who's kind of he's a little nuts and he just wants everyone to have fun and have no rules and no safety and you know c- go at your own risk and you know th- there's a lot going on on in this there's the kind of this the legend that the park becomes the legend that is gene mulvahill the you know the staff being like 15 and 16 year olds in charge of the whole park uh this this kind of new jersey attitude where like there's a great line where someone (laughs) says we tried to die like 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 that was you want to skirt as close to death as you can and then come back from the edge and that's just how they lived and it's this whole new jersey attitude you can't handle the ride go home get out of jersey and yeah. it's it, it's wild i mean and like you said people legitimately hurt broken bones concussions uh you know people getting life flighted backboarded and and a few actual deaths it, it's crazy but the the, the whole thing i i really enjoyed it the, the style lots of of uh foot uh, cl- or I- archival footage and interviews with the people that were there. Yeah, so I I kind of love what's happening in this doc, and and my history with Action Park starts with a, a YouTube channel called Defunct Land, who does little mini documentaries, usually about twenty thirty minutes, about parks like this one, and they'd covered this one a couple years ago, and then. If you remember, uh, Action Park got a little bit of love in pop culture a couple years ago when Johnny Knoxville of Jackass fame came out with a movie called Action Point, which was based on Action Park. It was the same story. He, he plays this guy who, back in the day, wanted people to be able to ride these rides and control everything themselves. That was the whole idea. You would control the speed. You would control your own brakes. You you have your own fun. Sort of. Sort right. Of. Yes, based on, based, based on this character of Gene Mulvihill, right? We don't have to worry about regulations. It, it's fine. Uh, he sets up a fake insurance company so he can have fake insurance so he can open the park. And, you know, it'll be cool. People, people are just going to come have fun. Action Point is a story that I think is supposed to be kind of endearing, right? And also you see stupid Johnny Knoxville stunts. What's horrifying about Action Park is, like, that was 100% real. Gene Mulvihill built this park out of... I mean, nothing. And, and, and they tested these rides. Gum and duct tape. Yeah. yeah. They, they tested these rides with like cheap crash test dummies. He bought from like local department stores that didn't need their mannequins anymore. And they'd run a, a mannequin through a, through a water slide and come out the other end in pieces. And rather than <laughs> fix the ride, he'd just pay a teenage employee a hundred bucks to go down themselves and see if they came out. Okay. That was like the standard here. He had a fake insurance company for building what he for, for building this company that never paid out, and he had friends in high places, lawyers, and 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 people who in the New Jersey uh, uh, infrastructure who basically covered for him. So Action Park stayed open, and people kept going. So this documentary focuses on the people that worked there and some of the attendees Uh, it's mostly employees and a couple people who just went casually who are comedians mostly chris gethard uh he's kind of the focus as far as the guests go um and you get a good really intimate look at the park the layout the rides the history and then 
unfortunately where it all goes and what happens um, when you have all these rides that are incredibly unsafe. So there's a lot of great places to jump in here. Uh, Andy, I think the first place to start is our presentation. You're right. Lots of archival footage, which is great. Also lots of interviews. I'm curious. What do you think of that? What do you think of the employees versus the guests? I don't know. Just It's great having, uh, I mean, those are essentially primary sources and that's the closest you're going to get. Cause they certainly didn't have video cameras, <laughs> you know, security cameras running at this place. They didn't no. want, they didn't want anything that happened to be on yeah. tape. No security camera footage from action park. They didn't exist. Um, you know, so so you got to do w- with what you can, and they do have a lot of archival footage. They have uh, advertising footage, and yeah, I think it's a good format to to kind of it switches between uh, all these people that were there and hands on, and like I said, a lot of people that w- actually worked at the park that were like, I was fifteen and I was a manager yeah. at this, <laughs> this this park. You know, that's r- really wild. And you know, when you think when you hear people talk about, whoa, back in my day, like we could go outside and not worry about, and it's like, yeah, but look at what you were doing. <laughs> yeah these kids are like getting high in between shifts and going to sitting on the lifeguard stands and like going up to the infirmary wing and and you know having sex and like it was a mess it's a horrible environment to run an amusement park um and meanwhile you've got younger kids running around at this thing but i'll, I'll talk about the stuff that's more harrowing at the end because that's fundamentally how the doc is presented right act one of this thing is the history gene mulvihill how he got it started how these rides started coming together and we start getting a layout of the park we get a good overview we have these three sections we got uh what do we got water world motor world and i don't remember the alpine slide world i guess yeah is really what it is it's these two it's these two ski resorts that are closed during the summer. So that's what they've got this all built on. Uh, and, and, and at first it starts off a little harrowing, but kind of funny. You, you get this like great unveiling of each of these rides and it starts off with the cannonball loop right by the entrance. It was a water slide that literally went in a loop, which is impossible as far as physics are concerned and nobody should do. And everybody came out injured out of that thing. And like, <laughs> was horrible. And then it says, oh, you thought the Cannonball Loop was cool? Check out the Colorado River Run, all right? Or look at this kayak thing. And then we're going to slide like over to Motor every, World. Yeah, yeah, everything was super dangerous. Yeah, and it shows the ride, and it goes, here's how it didn't work. Here's a story where somebody got injured on it. Here's a story where somebody injured somebody else on it. And it's just these series of vignettes of these rides that were, like, incredibly unsafe, which are, unfortunately, a ton of fun to watch. <laughs> It is so much fun to watch this old grainy footage and watch people talking about this horror story of them going down it because you don't have to live it, right? You can just kind of experience them doing it uh, safely from the comfort of your own home. And I thought that stuff worked like gangbusters. Yeah, the, the 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 stuff about the rides is really good because most of them are incredibly dangerous. You know, you have these uh, like this cliff diving stuff of like a 20 foot drop into ice cold water, you know, with 14, 15 year old lifeguards who are, you know, stoned and not really paying attention. So like you better know how to swim and you better not get hurt or, you know, there might be someone there still like they talked about people piling up at the ends of rides and they're just yeah. like, well, well, whatever. And like the, uh, yeah, like, like the loop, they, they tested it basically with live people. People lost teeth, yeah. you know, or dislocated shoulders. And then other people shoulders. went through and scraped the teeth on their way through. It's like they were embedded in the plastic. Like, holy God, like it's a horror story. Um, yeah, and it's, but what's wild is is how much people, you know, as dangerous as what, I mean, people loved it. They're yeah, like, right. you, they like, they, that's what they wanted. You know, they, they wanted to, you know, yes, I'll, I'll do a backflip off a 20 foot dive, um, 
you know, or, or all this stuff, you know, with, and you had, you know, full grown adults and like kids doing these same rides. Like, good luck, kid. Hope you don't get knocked unconscious. Yeah. And that's a perfect segue into act two. This movie is a, a tight 90 minutes, by the way. So it's a perfect like 30 minutes, 30 minutes and 30 minutes to get, get through everything. And, and our second act is exactly that. What was endearing about this? Why did people go to action park? And you get these wonderful interviews from the kids who were working there, who, yeah, we're like 14 and 15 at time, now who are probably 50 and 60 or however old they are. Uh, uh, and, and also, you know, attendants, people who went, comedians now. You get these wonderful, like, little set pieces from them talking about how horrifying these rides are and then why they went. And really what it was, uh, and, and to speak to what you'd mentioned at the top, Andy, about wanting to die, it was kids in the 80s who didn't have internet and had nothing better to do and didn't have cell phones, right? And their parents didn't care where they were during the day as long as they were back by dinner time. So, like, they'd get together with their friends, they'd ride their bikes down to Action Park and screw around and dare each other to go off rides and stuff. And, like, in a way, as a child, it sounds amazing, right? It's like uh, it's it's <laughs> yeah, like that totally. island in Pinocchio where everybody goes and turns into a jackass. Like, it's it's... <laughs> It's, it's like incredible. Neverland. Yeah, and like the second act of the film does a great job of kind of slanting it and saying, hey, look, like this was dangerous, but that was part of what was so cool about it, right? Like it was this thing, it was an experience you couldn't get anywhere else. And like in a way, the film does sell that as kind of a romantic idea. Yeah, I mean, I think a lot of people remember their uh, childhood, like especially when you talk to to older generations and they, they'll talk about like, yeah, I got on my bike at, you know, 10 a.m. in the morning and then I got home at seven and my parents didn't know where I was for eight or nine hours and that was normal and everyone did that and so it's yeah definitely this nostalgic look at at youth and you know previous generations would have had equally as little um supervision but we didn't have the technology and basically ways to kill yourself (laughs) as we do in action park or or kind of as technology um kind of comes about Right, and I think that is really where Action Park hits, sorry, Class Action Park as a documentary, hits its high point. Like, right right there, it's where you've got people who are talking about what really worked at the park and why they went and why they went back and why every summer they'd come, they, they'd come back to school after the summer was over and see kids with, like, you know, road rash and, like, <laughs> asphalt burns from falling off the alpine slide because the sleds were broken and, like all this different injuries and stuff. And to them, it was like this rite of passage. And and you combine that with this idea that, yeah, this thing was like this weird pinnacle of danger and fun and human history that doesn't exist anymore. Like before this, nobody had anything like action park, this dream where you could have this unregulated freedom with all of the danger that came with it. But also nobody's had it since like it landed right at this time when it was this beautiful kind of, yeah, b- b- before you would have had more heavy regulation. There's a lot of legal, a uh, b- big part of the documentary are, are legal issues and, law- and lawsuits. Uh, and yeah, eventually the, the park would, and it, it wasn't actually, the park didn't shut down because it was dangerous. Uh, basically, Gene Mulvihill's, uh his finance partner became, was caught by the feds, uh, guilty of uh, white collar crime, securities fraud, and he lost his kind of investment investor. But it, it didn't close because it was dangerous, um, su- surprisingly. But it was a kind of, it, that would have eventually happened. Eventually, 
you know, you, you get more things like foot. I mean, now that we have cell phones, like everything would have been caught on footage. You would have brought that into a court case and it would have been no question. Oh yeah. This never would have worked in the age of cell phones. Never, ever would this have worked like no way. It's amazing. They have like footage now of kids who had camcorders and took them over there. Cause like even those back then were expensive and bulky and like nobody really had those things. Mm-hmm. And action park again, afforded no luxuries to people like that like it was basically like you could buy beer and you could ride ridiculous rides that were completely unsafe and and that's go ahead well that, that, that's one of the things uh in motor world there was like uh you know they had a go-kart things that had these really fast go-karts they said we could go like 50 or 60 because they they managed to oh like figure out how to disable the governors on them but also it was right next to like the beer tent so people would get totally plastered and then go drunk driving on the on the on the yeah. go karts, and it was just like, oh my god, yeah, really not okay. And that's and that's where the film takes a turn into Act Three. And I don't want to talk too much about this because this isn't a spoiler show, and I've already said a lot about what's going on in this documentary. But Act Three takes a turn because that's when, naturally, knowing where this story is going to end up, Action Park will close, and it will close because Gene Mulvihill will run out of money, and he will run out of money because he'll be trying to fight legal battles and trying to pay off people and and have a friend who is busy doing other shady things in the stock market. And, And this is where you get kind of some of the horror stories, especially around death. This is where people start dying. And that's really where this doc takes a turn. Yeah, it, it it's some hard stuff. And it, I mean, there were lots of lawsuits because of people getting hurt and very little to no, no regard for safety. I mean, something like the Alpine Slide, which is not the ride that I, I figured people would get hurt on the most. But when they explain it, it was basically a very fast, like concrete roller coaster that you ro- rode down in this tiny sled with no helmet right. or, or anything like that. And, you know. Try not to meet your maker, right? But like, go ahead. yeah, but the, but the, it turns in. I mean, lots of people, like I said, get hurt, um, have to go to the hospital, get life flight, get backboarded, and eventually, yes, lots of people sue. And not only do they sue, is but Gene Mulvihill had a uh, a policy of never settle, never settling a lawsuit, never settling a case, taking everyone to trial, which means most lawyers will give up. And even when he did, he would still refuse to pay to the point that like U.S. Marshals had to go to the park and basically demand money and the the park general manager would eventually cut them a check. Yeah. Um, and that that are, that in itself is, is really trying, finding out that, hey, the, the, the mad scientist who's working all this was kind of a heartless guy. He did not ever seem to find any sympathy for the people who were there, he did not call up the, the families of the victims and like profusely apologize. He didn't even shut down the park. People would die and the thing would be open not only the rest of the day, but the day after that and the day after that. The ride would still be functioning like they never, ever bothered to pump the brakes and say, hey, we need to do something about this. And remember, like these slot, these, these rides are not created by, by committee, they're not made by people who had been doing this for years or engineers. It was literally this dude and his friends, like, getting hammered and being like, hmm, what could we make? And then while, could, and then while they're out making it, they'll go, hmm, how can we make this more dangerous and more fun? There are parts of this Alpine slide where, according to the head of security who's on the stock, if you didn't pump the brakes, you went off, period. Like, you had to control it yourself. They said up at the top of the Alpine slide, one ride, this is one in Action Park. They had pictures of, of victims who were, like, gored when they fell off, blood running down their faces and bruises as a warning to people that, hey, this is real. 
it's fun, but it's also dangerous. And you're taking that on when you get on this ride. It is insanity. And you would never see anything like it nowadays. I mean, never, never would this work. It's amazing it worked back then, frankly. Yeah, and but that's again part of the the attitude that that it that it harkens back to this this time of youth of invincibility, which and and it's almost as if the death, the deaths that happened of the, of the park were a selling point. Like, oh my god, this place is so awesome. People have died. That's how awesome the the rides are, um, and and yeah, it's like people just if you could just survive it, it was it was worth it. Mm-hmm. And that's. Um... That's Class Action Park, I guess. Um, and it sounds, again, it sounds harrowing coming at the end because it is. And, like, people, there were actual victims of this thing. And I think ultimately where the where the, the, the documentary kind of makes it stand is whether or not we should be romanticizing this thing as an idea. Which is funny because the documentary is fundamentally doing that in marketing it and selling it to people as something they should watch and experience and, and watch Class Action Park, right? Um, but is it something we should lift up as like an ideal of human virtue or is it something we should say, Hey, let's not pay attention to this. This is bad. And I think there's, there's a bit in there where they talk about the difference between somebody like Walt Disney and somebody like Gene Mulville. And they say, you know, Walt Disney wanted this ideal of an America of a main street USA with some fantasy and Western elements built in. And he built a park that was around that Gene, Gene Mulville wanted an idea of unregulation, right? He didn't, he didn't want regulation. He didn't want to have to have insurance at his park. He didn't want to have to agree that people were going to be safe the way he saw it. If you want to have fun, you can, but if you get hurt, it's on you. And that's the way it is, which is a very different way of looking at the world and, and a very different way of building an amusement park. And it makes for a fascinating subject. Yeah. or class action park. I wanted to also mention that the park was like successful financially to the point that it had, you know, had created this community there. And, you know, a, a lot of the people, that's part of the reason it didn't shut down is because it was a good revenue generator for the, the city of, uh, I think it's Vernon Township. Um, and a lot of people there were actually on the payroll of the part or Gene Mulvihill. And so they didn't, want it shut down even if it was dangerous even if people were getting hurt or killed there was like well but it's good for the city and so that's kind of an indictment of capitalism i think somewhat yeah definitely um yeah and there's there's definitely some elements of yeah regulation versus deregulation there's some mention of like ronald reagan in here and his administration and how they kind of handled how industries should and shouldn't regulate things like safety features and what that did for the local economy like those are all good questions and 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 class action park just starts to scrape that surface enough, but stay focused on its subject of this wild park with the, in this wild time. Then I think you get a, a really cool full package for like a 90 minute documentary. It's a very fun ride. Even if at the end it is a hard short stop, um, which I was not a fan of. I did not, <laughs> did not like how hard that turned. That's just me though. Um, Anything else you want to say about this one, Andy? We talked about this one a ton. Well, it, it's funny because it, it reminded me of my own, youth and I, I was a teenager in the 90s not the 80s but it, it's still you know I, I was thinking about how we were talking about this before the show like my parents would have never let me go to something like this by myself like no. if, if I were to go they would have been there with me and so it, it's crazy to hear these 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 kids that were like 12 13 14 15 who were like yeah we would just get on our bikes drive you know pedal across the highway to action park stay there for a day or all weekend or whatever and then come home you know and a lot of them were working there they were 14 15 year old managers of of this park it's it's just it's a crazy time 
Yeah, they had fourteen-year-olds working there. Oh my god! Like just, just, I mean, nuts. Um, but kind of this, 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 this beautiful mess of 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 an idea and and a really interesting subject for a documentary. Uh, I think I've said about all I got to say on it uh, without giving too much away. Andy, you ready for recommendations? I am. Andy, would you recommend Class Action Park? Yeah, it, it's a lot of fun. It's a lot of like jaw dropping, like, oh my gosh, I can't believe they allowed that. I can't believe that was legal. I can't believe people had this attitude. I can't believe parents let their kids. Um, and it's it's well it, it's well shot. Like there's good interviews, there's good archival f- footage, you know, it's an interesting uh topic and you know you know the attitudes behind it are also interesting and that's one thing that that's explored this this idea of youth it's also this like new jersey kind of tough attitude if you can't handle the the rides get out of jersey uh so yeah i really enjoyed it and it's short 90 minutes yeah uh i'm in the same boat 100 percent, 100 percent recommendation this movie this, this this is a really really good documentary um it's not particularly cinematic it does feel a little made for tv but like for what's going on here that doesn't matter because the arc again the archival footage they've got is from the 80s it's in like four by three and it's all grain so like none of it's going to look particularly amazing anyway but that's not what it's about it's not it's not about what it looked like it's about how it felt and fundamentally that's what class action park is going for so that's what nostalgia is yeah yeah exactly and and yeah in a lot of ways even though i am am definitely the youngest person on this podcast i'm pretty sure uh yeah man i didn't i didn't get a cell phone till i was 16 so there were definitely a good chunk of my formative years where there was no real internet and it was running around doing stupid stuff with your friends it wasn't growing up to be a teenager like these people were at class action park but i can it, it does grab a little bit of that that flame right uh, of being a kid and having fun when your parents aren't around and i i, I really respect that even though it turns into something awful. I don't respect the yeah. park. Yeah. <laughs> I yeah, respect, they, I respect the spirit of the people who went there, I think is what I've got. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I mean, it's, it's crazy. And and it's funny. I, I used to work at, um, at a summer camp for, for about 10 summers. And even the course of, of those 10 years, uh, like I saw the camp transform into something that was loose, uh, kind of loose supervision, loose regulation to over those 10 years, get more and more tight. They took away some of the fun, but albeit dangerous, uh, you know, activities to do like, uh, supervision got much more tight. Cause it used to be, you kind of just let the kids go. And then eventually you had to schedule every single hour and have like, you know, two people to every, however many kids at all times. So you, you kind of see the, the times change as well. Big time. So that's Class Action Park. It's on HBO Max. Uh, if you have the means, I would say absolutely, absolutely go check it out. Totally worth your time. And also, um, on the off chance, my parents are listening. Sorry, Andy, this is a really personal thing. HBO Max still isn't available on Roku because Warner Brothers hasn't worked out a deal with Roku and Amazon to put it on <laughs> Roku and Amazon Fire Sticks. So if you can't get HBO Max on your Roku, that's why. And I'm really I ran sorry. into that same issue too. Yeah. Yeah, I, I run into it at their house and they're like, what do we do? And like, it's it's literally because Roku charges, Roku and Amazon charge like 30% of subscription fee off the top. So mm-hmm. a- a- Warner Brothers doesn't want to take that haircut. They don't want to they don't want to pay Roku a chunk of their earnings on HBO Max over there. So it's not on the platform. And uh, that's why you can't watch this. So I'm really sorry. And I hope they work it out soon because I don't have a I don't I don't I don't know. Yeah, that's yeah. that's that's that. And with that. We should move on. Well, sorry. Did you have something to say? I was going to say, by the way, I didn't get a cell phone until I was 19. Okay. There like my fir- first year of college. How Do you still have it? How janky was that thing? Uh, No, I don't have it. It. You know what happened is the charger like port cracked and I, it wouldn't charge anymore. That'll do it. 
Yeah. So, hmm. man, well, imagine if you'd had the internet now. Well, uh, we should move on to our next uh, topic. I'm excited to get into this one. You know, I've titled this uh, loosely the, the death of cinema on our on our outline here, but it's, it's not. This is not the death of cinema. <laughs> we should have we should have swapped this in our delays story, but we probably we... <laughs> should have. But you know what? It's fine. Uh, so, Andy, there's been some news in the Mad Max world. That's right. This is, by the way, this is the death of cinema. Thank you for that. Right. So I just pulled this up today. Uh, Furiosa, Anya Taylor-Joy, Chris Hemsworth, uh, Yahya Abdul-Mateen II to star in Mad Max spinoff. So this is something that's been rumored for a long time that um, George Miller director and writer of Mad Max Fury Road in the Mad Max series was going to make a, a prequel film about Furiosa, uh, an origin story, um, the character played by Charlize Theron in, in Mad Max Fury Road. So we finally have some actual casting news. Uh, Anya Taylor-Joy will play young Furiosa, which kind of gives you an insight into the area. We don't have any details about script or plot or anything of that. But we do know that that they're looking at probably something like, I don't know, uh, like Teenage Furiosa, something like that. Uh, we don't know what the other two will play. Uh, Chris Hemsworth, he could play young younger Immortan Joe, which would be fantastic. And I don't know uh, who uh, Abdul Mateen II would play, but he's fa- fantastic. Uh, so this is really exciting news. We actually get in some concrete um, casting, and it, it's not completely greenlit, but this is a good sign. So... Just off the top, I want to get into this. Why did we make this the middle segment of our show instead of the delays? <laughs> One, because we talked about the delays a lot. Two, because if you haven't seen Mad Max Fury Road, you really need to go see that movie. It 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 was not only one of the most incredible action films from the year it came out, it is deemed as one of the most incredible action films like ever. Of all time. And also was regularly making top ten lists of the decade as far as films go. Uh, from 2010 to 2020 it is really good i think we talked about it on the show before yeah it, it um, was my favorite film of yeah, the decade it is amazing like if you haven't seen mad max fury road and you're thinking why are they talking about this mad max story you need to get yourself some context i don't know where it's available i don't think it's available streaming anywhere actually i yeah, think you I, have to go go rent it video on demand it's worth it I'll, I'll loan you the Blu-ray. I'm pretty sure Andy has the Blu-ray too. Yeah. yeah. Um, it is that good. Uh, this, this movie's tremendous. So what happened, Andy, for them to not just immediately turn around and say, we're making another one of these. Why is it taking this long? Cause this is an important part of the story. So George Miller had a big lawsuit against Warner brothers about er- something about earnings, some disagreement. They went to court long legal battle. I guess that's been settled and is in the past now or, whatever the the parties have kissed and made up. And so we can actually move forward with this movie. Yeah. And that's fundamentally, I think what is so exciting about this for me. Uh, the fact that George Miller's working with Warner brothers again, really what had happened, I think to get specific, uh, as specific as I can, um, basically George Miller was contracted through the film to receive a certain amount of earnings. If the film made a certain amount of money uh, at the box office and it crushed it. But Warner Brothers called him on a technicality and said, no, no, no. In your contract, it says it only, makes, only if it makes a certain amount of money after box office returns in this window. And it was like right outside of that. It was like two million shy. And then over the next like six weeks following that window, it went on to make like triple whatever that original number was. 
and he was like, come on, like, this is obviously a hit. I crushed it for you guys. And you're really digging with your lawyers to tell me why I can't get paid. Like that doesn't work, but somehow they've worked it out. And thank God, because I, I hope he got paid out. I think he deserves it. And also, uh, I'm so glad he's back in the director's chair for another one. Um, we need more. And he, and he's like 78 or something, right? Like yeah. he's, he's old. There, there are people that, that wouldn't vote for him for president. So like, we need to, you know, <laughs> shape up and get some more, get some more Mad Max out of this man before it's too late. And I'm excited about that. So as far as the story of Furiosa goes, does that really tickle your fancy? Cause I'll be honest, that kind of doesn't for me. It, it, do, it does for me because we only learn a little bit about her in Mad Max Fury Road. And kind of the big thing is that she essentially betrays Immortan Joe and is seeking redemption. She's trying to save herself along with uh, his, his brides, his, his prize breeders, as they call them in the movie. Um, so Mad Max Fury Road is about redemption which insinuates that she has done bad things in her past. And we know that because she's worked her way up through, you know, the, the, the system and she is an, an imperator, which is kind of a pretty high ranking person in, in their organization. And she's trusted with the task of, of driving the, uh, the war wagon um, to, or the war rig to Gaston or, or whatever it is. Like she has clearly moved her way up, up through this makeshift army, um, and has had to presumably do a lot of bad things to get there. So if Mad Max Fury Road is about her redemption, I think the prequel will be about her. her we know that she, we also know that she was kidnapped. So I think the film will be about her kidnapping as a young girl, her losing her arm because she loses her arm at, at some point. Yeah. And her, you know, what I would assume some sort of survival, survive at any cost that will enable her to fight her way up in what is very clearly a man's world to become a, a driver and imperator. Um, but then we'll also, you know, it'll come at a cost. Right. The, the, the questions that will be, will hopefully be answered in this film. If you didn't get them from Mad Max Fury Road are a, what was the green place and what did that look like? B, uh, how does she lose her arm and C, how does she become a almost, I mean, pre, an imperator, right? Almost like a general, in an army of all dudes where women are specifically excluded and then abused because they're women. How does that happen? So that's all good. I'm really interested to see Anya Taylor-Joy. Uh, I think she's <laughs> criminally underrated uh, yeah. as an actress and she shouldn't be because she's probably going to be the next big actress. Uh, she's, she's huge. Uh, Chris Hemsworth. Okay. I think you could use something besides Thor and Netflix's extraction Two which I don't know how he's going to be in the sequel for that movie, but he is. And then Yaya Abdul, um, dude, big, big plus. Guy got an he's, Emmy for Watchmen, and that was like his first big role. He's, mm-hmm. he's, he's, he's good. He's a real good actor. Watch out. Chris Hem- I almost feel like Chris Hemsworth is, he's like too pretty to be Morton Joe. <laughs> like you got to get someone that, that just like, he's too dashing. Yeah. Um, he definitely plays an interesting foil for somebody like Tom Holland. If I didn't know any better, I'd say he's a recast Max. Because, uh, or Tom Holland, Tom, uh, Tom, Hardy. Oh my God, Hardy! That's it. Good Lord, I've watched too many superhero movies. Um, yeah, Tom Hardy, supposedly on set when they were filming um, Fury Road. Fury Road had a real hard production because they were straight up out in like the deserts of Namibia or whatever. Namibia, Nambia, Nambia. Excuse me. And uh, they they had some hard days. And even like when they were accepting awards during award season, Tom Hardy was like apologizing to George Miller on stage because he was like, I didn't, I didn't have the vision you had, which was a nice way of saying, I probably gave you a whole lot of shit that I shouldn't have, 
but I didn't see where any of this was going and it didn't work. And, and that's, that's in a way that's kind of how Fury Road came to be this beautiful film that it is. It was kind of put together in this unconventional manner. So this one seems to check a lot more of the boxes. I think people know what they're getting into. Um, I hope they don't. I, I, I definitely hope there's no Max Rakitansky in this, right? Just leave him out. You don't yeah, need him. Yeah. Put him yeah. in another movie or whatever. Like, it's fine. I, I don't want any goofy nods to that. And and I, I hope there's enough enough rope in this Furiosa origin story to really make this work. Because you've got the cast and, like, you've got the director and you've got the IP and you've got the studio's money. Like, it checks every box for being a very, very, very good film. So... I don't know. Yeah, I, I got to pump I, the hype train brakes, I guess. Yeah, I'm I'm stoked for it. I, I'm a huge fan of, of Anya Taylor-Joy. She's kind of only had, I've mostly seen her in like nice roles or, you know, where she sometimes plays uh, she's, she's, a mean, a mean yeah. character, but like she's not, not, I haven't really seen her anything like real gritty like I imagined this would be. So I'm, I'm excited to see that. Well, um, I mean, she, there's a little bit of grit, but it's not going to be like this, right? She did The Witch, Robert Eggers, which is her first big thing. She's, she did Split and Glass from The Night Shyamalan, which are also a little gritty, but like, it won't be like this. This will be like out in the desert, blood on the sand stuff. Yeah, exactly. And, she, and I mean, look, and she'll have to look towards, she'll have to channel, uh, you know, Furiosa, like Charlie Theron's uh, kind of version of like, uh, just a younger version of that, like intensity and. Uh, I think that'll be really exciting. There, there'll be lots of, ac- obviously, lots of driving and action scenes that will, it'll be interesting um, to see how those go. The other thing I was excited about is, you know, we meet her her tribe as uh, this gang of old older female bikers um, the, who are almost kind of at their, almost extinct. It's almost yeah. the en- end of their clan. So mm-hmm. it'll be exciting to see the young version of all these kind of uh, badass women that, that we see in Fury Road, see what they were like. 20 30 years before yeah and i i hope this manages to maintain a little bit of that like indie feel that fury road had because fury road didn't feel like a big budget production even though it was um they had a pretty sizable budget for that film um it felt very small and intimate mm-hmm. and like i hope this can hang on to that i hope warner brothers doesn't say okay well, we'll do another one but we're blowing it out and, and selling it like a triple a feature and if it doesn't hit 500 billion dollars we're never making another one like because that's not that's not what these films have ever been uh, mad max has never been this like huge triple a box office draw even if you're looking at like beyond thunderdome like i don't think it's ever supposed you know it's they're they're Australian films for God's sake. They're not they're not these big Hollywood productions. So, I have dude. I got big hopes for this one. I I probably more than I should. I'm unrealistically hyped for it. So that's that's where I'm at. Yeah, I'm I'm trying to like you said pump pump the brakes on the uh, hype train. Big time. And speaking of pump the brakes, we should talk about our final film of the episode. Andy's graciously agreed to take the summary on this one. Andy, please take it away. This is. David Attenborough, A Life on Our Planet. Tonight, we've got rather different program for you. I am David Attenborough, and I am 93. So this is a new nature documentary uh, slash uh, climate change film from renowned nature documentarian David Attenborough, who at the ripe age of 93 is still uh, making nature docs. I, I knew that he was... Up there, I knew he was kind of an institution, but I had no idea he was in his 90s and has, you know, he's been making nature documentaries for 60 years. He started in the 50s and has been making them this entire time. Uh, This film is kind of a witness statement of what he has personally seen 
which is kind of the disappearance of the wilderness uh, in just in his lifetime. He talks about when he first got started, how easy it was to see to spot certain kinds of animals and in habitats and environments. And then because of things like overfishing and deforestation and whaling and basically capitalism <laughs> run amok, uh, it's destroyed a, a lot of these these places. So it's his kind of firsthand account of seeing the way things were and the way things are now and also how we can kind of start to turn this around and the documentary starts with him in chernobyl uh, the site of the infamous uh, nuclear meltdown at the chernobyl nuclear plant um, and he's at the city which has since been reclaimed by nature and so and that's kind of what it's it's about it's about we're in a disaster, it's impending here, but here's how we can fix it. And so we get lots of shots, lots of nature shots in, in, in um, all different times of environments in the sea, ice, forest, rainforest, desert, um, mixed with, you know, what we can, what's happening to the planet and what we can do to kind of help that. So that's the documentary. So, uh, a life on our planet. I'm not going to call it David Attenborough's life on our planet, except for like the beginning and the end of this <laughs> review, just for the sake of like quickly summarizing. But life on our planet is a bit of a harrowing film. I wish I could say it's more hopeful uh, than than harrowing, but like it kind of isn't, and, and that's only because the David Attenborough is 93, and this movie does a brilliant job of telling us the story of the last about hundred years of our planet through the lens of David Attenborough's life, right? He is the vehicle through which we are carried through this history. He talks about how when he was 20, uh, in his early 20s, he he, he would uh, he, he was afforded a job where he was able to fly around the world and go to places to explore and, and write journals and come back with, with video footage of, of these far corners of the earth right when air travel really started to become mainstream. So he was flying around to places when nobody else was, going, going to parts of the earth that had never really been seen by... I mean, almost everybody. And, and, and that continued throughout his life. And so we get these wonderful vignettes walking through the history of his productions and what he's done. It's not super deep on him, let's be clear. It is the history of the world, not his life. He is just kind of the timeline through which we're following it. But we get this kind of enlightening look at how how bad things have gotten. Um, and, and you want it to be more hopeful. You want it to be more like, hey... Things are good, and it gets there. It does. There, there's there's some great stuff towards the end of this film that really says, "Hey, it's not too late. We can do this. All right, we've come this far. We can keep going. Like we can we can do the right thing." That that's all there. But I think the first half of it uh, is definitely. I mean, it's, it's it's literally a decline. That's the point of it, right? To come back up and rise back up on the other end. And I think that uh -huh. can be. That's just a bummer for me. <laughs> yeah, it is. It, yeah. Yeah. It's pretty shocking because it talks about, you know, he was born in 1927 and the population of the world was about 2 billion. So within his lifetime, the population has nearly quadrupled. Mm -hmm. And, you know, there's a couple of other stats that get thrown up as far as, uh, you know, how much wilderness there is, the uh, CO2 levels right, in the it, air, right. Exactly. And just, you know, what he points out in just his lifetime, he has seen, like I said, the population quadruple. We can't have that happen again. Like the, the, kind of peak of of human population is something around 10 or 11 billion so we're not too far from there and we the planet physically could just cannot take more we couldn't quadruple the population again or even double it at this point to have mass starvation and so that's a lot of what he is addressing is what's happening and and what it's looked like from his point of view 
and a lot of that show, you know, he talks about whaling and deforestation and these the disappearance of lots of habitats that he used to be, go to and be a, very easily be able to find a lot of really rare animals. Yeah, and this is all told through this kind of uh, this wonderful not only archival footage of David Attenborough's life going and doing these things when he's a young younger man, but also all of the footage he shot over his life for for you know Blue Planet and Life on Earth and Frozen Planet and Planet Earth and Planet Earth Two and like incredible hours and hours and hours of, of literally years of this man's life like put on video places he's gone and things he's done and and and, and things his camera crew has shot. Um, it's, it's really incredible stuff. And it's all of those, all of those hallmarks that you probably know and love from David Attenborough films. If you've seen some of the stuff he's done before, um, but told in a different way. Yeah. Told, a- angled instead of being uh, instead of celebrating all of the wonders of the planet. Like I feel like so many of his productions do this one says, Hey, we need to stop and take a look at this. <laughs> this is important. You know, this is a big deal. And it's really interesting to see Attenborough step in front of the camera for that. I've seen a lot of his older stuff, and and it's different to see him here now talking directly at the screen in a very intentional like look at the camera when he's talking instead of looking at an interview off to the side to say, hey, we need to do something about this. Um, it's really powerful. It's really powerful. Yeah, it, it's like you said, it, it's very different from his all, all his other kind of filmography that, that looks at life in, in the Arctic or, or in the rainforest or un, under the sea. It's, it's about what's happening. Again, it's environmentally conscious. It's about what's happening to these places. He talks about the oceans bleaching, uh, coral reefs getting warmer, about deforestation. Um, the, I mean, it gets into like food, like our diets and the way we eat even as, as, a, as a people, energy sure. resources. Yeah. Climate change, polar ice caps melting, uh, yeah, soil fertilization, why that's important, CO2 levels in the air. Like, it does a great job of kind of quickly illustrating how all of these systems work together without spending three hours digging into solutions and really getting too deep on any one thing. And it's a broad overlook. It is not a specific attack on any, like, one one idea. And, and it's an interesting approach because this isn't even feature length. This is an hour and 23 minutes, which is a quick watch. Yeah, it, it's it's nice and short, and and you do get a lot of those, you know, like you said, classic uh, things from his nature documentary. Like you get this incredible footage of, uh, you know, of the oceans, of the rainforests, uh, of of the Arctic, and you know, lots of of cool footage of animals in in the wild, rare things or things that you've seen before. But it looks pretty amazing. Like uh, if if you have an HDR TV, it'll it'll do the HDR thing and and look really really sharp. So it you get to see a lot of just the beauty of nature as well. Yeah. That's something that we should, should mention on top of just talking about what David Attenborough has done in the past, like his commitment uh, and and his team's commitment to archiving um, quality footage of all of these animals and life biomes, environments all over the country, all over the country, all over the world are like unprecedented. And yeah, when he was putting out like planet earth and planet earth two, those were coming out on like Blu-ray and like UHD Blu-ray, like before Blu-ray was even really a thing. They were like shooting in like 8K years ago because they were like, we want to get the highest quality footage possible of this stuff because we know it needs to be archived and will be useful later to look back. That's kind of been his mantra all along. So you get this wonderful walk back through his career, which is incredibly powerful and a bit emotionally harrowing, I think, if you're really invested in this stuff. Um, but for the best reasons, because it's really cool to see somebody who's 
been along for the ride to stop and say, hey, here's here's what I have to say about this stuff. And good news, I believe a lot of the same things you do. And I think it's not too late. We can do something about this. I think it's important. There's some great footage at the end of him and like UN conferences on climate change and like speaking to large groups like, hey, how can we affect this? What can we do? And I think they offer some really practical solutions that... I mean, I, they, they seem like they can work, but I'm not a scientist. What do I know, right? Right. Well, and a lot of that is about kind of changing attitudes, about getting everyone to care about it, everyone to be interested in in saving the environment, which is, you know, he said this isn't about saving the planet. It's about saving ourselves because mm. he said the, the planet will be fine. You know, if, if we manufacture ourselves into extinction, that'll suck for us, but the, the planet will be fine. The planet will recover. The planet has recovered through from mass extinctions several times over and it will do so again. Again, the Mm -hmm. difference is we will, we may not survive it. I'm also a big fan of the music in this film. Uh, Some wonderful orchestrations. I'm not sure who does it or what team was responsible for it, but it's similar to to planet earth and, and, and um, frozen planet and, and, and just some wonderful uh, really kind of emotional, strings getting pulled uh, on, on what you're seeing and what's happening because it's hard to quantify right uh, what exactly is you're supposed to be feeling when you're looking at footage of a tiger chasing a lion or a bunch of gazelles or penguins or whatever but I think I think it does a great job of striking this like perfect emotional chord between the footage and the music and the narration to come off feeling really genuine and Attenborough kills it I swear to God, that guy, I mean, he's up there with Morgan Freeman is like, can narrate anything. And it sounds amazing. Like yeah. it's, 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 his voice is just pitch perfect. Yeah. He's got a, got a great, got a pr- great presence, but he's also so intense and he's so passionate about the subject, even mm-hmm. at 93. Right. Like he's, he's clearly devoted his whole life to it and like genuinely matters to him. And that, that matters to us, I think mm-hmm. at home. Well, and, and he know and he knows, I mean, he's not a spring chicken. Like he, He's not going to be around for when, when, and if all this goes belly up or all of this becomes irreversible, he's not going to be around for it. So in, in a lot of ways, like it's not really his concern, but he is, but he still is very concerned about it. Yeah. It's a fascinating. He, do, he doesn't have to be. I know. And, and that's, that's part of what's so interesting about it, that he would stop down and say, Hey, I could just, I could take my money and go home. Or I could go live on a private Island somewhere. Or I could travel the world, but no, I want to make this thing. And I want to tell people in the medium that I've always told my stories and Hey, this is important and this matters. And this is really cool. So I don't know. I, I'm a fan of this one. I think uh, we should probably, probably move on to recommendations. Do you have anything else you want to say about it? I feel like this is much more shallow than action. Park, no, the, it's, no, there's it's not... much more broad. It's just a very different topic. Yeah, well, and it's it's really positive, so there's not like a too much to like criticize about. No, it really. yeah, it's for for me saying it's harrowing. Like I mean that in the best way. It's encouraging, is what I should say. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Andy, would you recommend David Attenborough Life on Our Planet? Yes, absolutely. It's it's a very beautiful documentary, and like I said, it's mostly about climate change and environmentalism and the change that David Attenborough has personally witnessed over the last. Uh, 70 years, 60, 70 years that he's been doing uh, nature documentary, nature documentaries and kind of how we can change all that because it's not all gloom and doom. He does believe that we can kind of reverse or or slow or stop um, what's been happening to the planet. Yeah, I'm in the same boat. I recommend it too, especially if you're an Attenborough fan. I mean, if you've seen any of the ones that I mentioned or Andy mentioned, um, you're going to like this. It it is the same kind of energy and, and feeling of like rise of emotion and hope. I think um, that he brings to all of his productions. 
um, but in a different lens, in a different in a different way, and and it does a great job of kind of integrating the man with the mystery and building this larger image of somebody who's really dedicated their whole life to this, and and means it and is passionate about it and wants wants to pass that along to you in their own way. Um, it's a really cool little doc, and again, it's not even feature length. It's it's what is that eighty three minutes? Yeah. Now, I mean, with credits like that, it's it's a pretty quick watch. Um, so I'd encourage you to check it out. I really would, especially if you're a fan of nature docs, um, or just docs in general. I'd, I'd say I'd say it's worth checking out. That's what I think. And uh, speaking of thinking, we should probably wrap up the show, right? That's right. That's it's probably about it. Are we? I should have asked this before we did the show. Are we watch anything next week? We are. So okay, next good. week, yeah, great. <laughs> next week we we have a couple of things to look forward to. So we have yeah. the trial of the Chicago Seven, which is David Fincher's new film. Um, or no, Aaron Sorkin. Aaron Sorkin's new film, uh, or written by Aaron Sorkin, which is about the trial of the Chicago Seven, which was a, a group of activists. Uh, who were involved in um, the 1968 Democratic National Convention. There were riots and things of that nature around that time. These seven activists were put on trial, and so this is a movie about about the event and, and the fallout, the trial, these things. It's supposed to be, it's supposed to be uh, you know, it's like uh, Oscar-worthy or something. Oscar bait? <laughs> yeah, Oscar bait. <laughs> <That's>, <laughs> this so, would be an Oscar award-winning film, yeah. Uh, so that's one of them. And the other one uh, that we're looking into is called The Perfect Weapon, which is an HBO documentary about uh, cyber warfare. Oh, God. <laughs> I don't know if I can handle that. <laughs> Let me throw it up. Boom. Got it. Uh, I'm excited for Chicago 7. Uh, Aaron Sorkin's great. He wrote The Social Network, which is also a film that topped a lot of top 10 lists of the decade and a personal favorite of mine from David Fincher. It stars uh, Sacha Baron Cohen of our Bruno news. It stars Yahya Abdul-Mateen the uh, second from our Mad Max news and also Eddie Redmayne uh, from other movie news that we didn't talk about, but uh, I'm excited to see what's going on in it. And I've seen nothing about the perfect weapon. So I'm going in fresh, which would be great. Uh, <laughs> That's right. Cyber warfare. That reminds me, did you watch that movie? Uh, the social dilemma on Netflix? No. I have not seen it, but people have told me to watch it. So I, li- I live it. I live oh, it every okay. day. <laughs> All right, I see. Yeah, gotcha. It's Cyber Warrior. Keyboard Warrior is what you are. Yeah. Um, if you enjoyed the show, uh, if you were okay with me stumbling through the little changes in production and, uh, you know, just kind of liked what we had to say about Class Action Park or Life on Our Planet or Mad Max or any of our movie news, uh, you can let us know. Email us at mail at offscriptfilmreview.com. You can also comment on our Facebook post where we stream the show live uh, every Tuesday evening. Uh, you can talk, follow us on YouTube where we're posting our episodes over there. You can uh, check us out on Twitter and Instagram. We're doing little things over there. Not a whole lot, though. And, of course, you can follow us on Facebook. You can uh, check out our website, mail at offscriptfilmreview.com. And I think that covers all our plugs. But most importantly, if you want to help the show, if you want to get involved with what we're doing, the biggest thing you can do is just subscribe. Just subscribe to the show so you can get new episodes every single week. Tell your friends to subscribe. And if you really want to swing for the fences, if you've already subscribed and you're like, man, I wish there was something more I could do for these guys, uh, you can rate and review us. That's the big thing. Just rate and review us on iTunes. It moves us up in the the, the great algorithm. It helps more than you know. It's good podcast etiquette. Rate and review your favorite podcasts. It's good for them. All right, it's good for them. It's good for us. It's good for everybody. It makes the world a better place. So, yeah, that's my piece about podcasting. And with that being said, we got next week worked out. I think we're wrapped. Anything else? Is that it? I think we're good. Great. From all of us at Offscript, the home of Bold Cinema, I'm Zach Lewis. And I'm Dr. Draper. Thanks for watching.